Hey friends, I hope you're well. Um, this is kind of a irregular uh, segment I'm going to do. It's because there's not a lot of content to point to. I am going to post a link in the show notes towards an article written by Carla Hinton in the Daily Oklahoman newspaper, uh, which was written on this. But truth be told, uh, I'm close enough to this to actually know a lot of the inner workings, and I'm native to this, so um, I can speak to this issue a, a, a bit more accurately, a, a little bit more detailed than that. But if you want something writing, I'll, I'll have that article for you. I want to speak uh, and, and give an update on a really exciting and strange and exceptional, um, unprecedented uh, development in this litigious atmosphere of the United Methodist Church. Within other denominations that went through splits, they didn't necessarily have a trust clause, or if they did, they had a, an easier release valve. Within the United Methodist Church, it's gone the way that a lot of local churches feel like they have to file suit against the annual conference that is either not letting them go through the process or is putting different roadblocks in the way or being disingenuous in one way or another. In North Georgia, a couple months ago, a uh, judge got involved and said, you have to let churches go through paragraph 2553 because, of course, under Bishop Sue Halpert Johnson, they'd said there was too much misinformation and they couldn't let churches go. In Oklahoma, things started off pretty gracious and easy. That's where I, I'm from. I've disaffiliated in the second wave that left. They started off pretty gracious. They didn't think many would leave. And the first round, 29 churches left, including the very biggest church in our annual conference. In the second round, the second biggest church wanted to leave, St. Luke's, and it was a part of 55 churches, two of which were mine, who sought disaffiliation. And the percentage of churches that voted to allow ratified disaffiliation went down from over 90% in October of last year to just a little over 70%. Uh, in April of this year. So there's growing antipathy towards disaffiliating churches. As more churches disaffiliate, they will not be represented, of course. And so all that's left are, are growing in their antipathy towards those who want to leave. So of this class of 55 churches that wanted to leave was um, First Church Oklahoma City, or rather they wanted to be part of that class, but when they were slated to take their vote in January, suddenly their district superintendent, the night before, sent an email saying, actually, before you take your vote, they'd already scheduled the vote the night before, they said, no, we're, we're going to postpone that indefinitely and make you go through a viability study. And this was something that hadn't happened to any other churches seeking disaffiliation, and uh, if, if you want to know all the, the inner workings of this, I'll point you towards an interview I did with Hardy Patton of Oklahoma City First Methodist Church. I was able to go and sit down with him in his sanctuary. Hopefully you've seen it and liked it and you just think it's a great interview. Thank you. But uh, what, what happened at that point was the conference designated uh, a former conference official to oversee the viability study which consisted of just a couple interviews, required them to give some information, statistical. They had their first interview. Uh, they did not want to go through the process, but they complied with it. And then they were supposed to have a second meeting that was an hour long that continually got put off. Uh, rather, it, it wasn't even ever scheduled. And the church did all that it could to try and comply with conference wishes so that they could get on that slide of, uh, slate of churches leaving in April, 
and then uh, the facilitator just would not schedule it. So eventually, after reaching out several times and saying, hey, can we schedule this thing? Can we do it? And he either didn't respond or responded curtly and briefly with, we're just too busy. They finally came to the conclusion that the conference was just going to kick this can down the road until uh, the 2553 expired. So they felt that they had no choice but to sue the conference and protect their assets, um, file a protective order. So uh, that's where we were whenever I conducted that interview with Hardy Patton. Now, what happened since then was that uh, the, the conference uh, sought for the judge, a state judge, to dismiss the protective order because the, the state has no legal standing to interfere in this ecclesiastical matter. So from state to state, there are different norms, and it's just not just norms. There's, there's legal precedent as to whether or not a state government can or will get involved in affairs between a local church and a larger governing body. So the Oklahoma Annual Conference hired the largest law firm in the state to uh, defend them in this case against this suit, and they came, and I was actually called as a witness when they were called to court. The, the, state, the conference summoned, uh, I want to say subpoenaed, 15 different witnesses. It was a large number of witnesses, a lot of conference staff. I was subpoenaed. Um, uh, they didn't actually uh, send me a subpoena, but they asked me to come uh, for the lawyers on behalf of First Church because I was just going to be a standard against which their treatment would be measured. So they just called me up on the stand to say, this is the standard that was applied to, to my churches. And, and yes, there was no viability study, even though one could easily look at my churches and say, hey, they're not very viable either. Um, so I was one of several witnesses that helped the judge, who was a fantastic judge, by the way. I was so impressed with her last name, Timmons. I wanted to write her a, a thank you letter, and then I was told that that that's not appropriate. But she just kind of would, uh, I was in the courtroom and it lasted all last Friday and the Friday before, that's the Friday I was there. So two, two whole Fridays and then this Monday, yesterday, she made the pronouncement. But over the course of this the, these proceedings, I was just floored. I was only there for the first one. But first off, their representation, the conference's representation was terrible. I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, this, this largest law firm in the, the state, I don't know why they would hire this guy, but he was regularly whining and complaining and pushing back against the judge in ways, you know, I've said, I've spent a lot of time in courtrooms before. I can honestly say I've never seen a lawyer conduct himself in this way. There was one point where I actually thought that she would be within her rights to, to bring up the word contempt with him, uh, but she didn't. She was, she was gracious and patient with him but, I mean, for instance, I'd never seen anything like this happen. He was trying to delay the court case, you know, because this is the strategy of the annual conference. Delay, delay, delay. It demoralizes the congregation, takes away their momentum. She says at the end of the first Friday, well, we need to take care of this ASAP, so we're going to be in here again next week. You tell me what time works for you. And he says, I'm busy, Judge. I'm sorry. I don't want to move things this fast. You're putting words in my mouth. And she said... <laughs> Apparently, they had scheduling issues long before. She said, you don't remember out in the hallway here going day by day by day and you saying you were busy every day? And he said, no, that didn't happen. And she said, do I need to get my bailiff out here and put him under oath? So I've never seen anything like this. 
Finally, uh, she says, okay, I, I'm busy Monday through Thursday next week. Let's do Friday. And he says, I'm sorry, I have a case. And she said, who's your, who's your judge? I'll call your judge. I'll, I'll tell him you're busy. And he gives her the name of the judge. And I didn't know the judge. And she, inst- she went up to 10. She said, you mean to tell me you're putting this off for a divorce hearing? She says, you know how things work. Man, she chewed him upside and down the other. Uh, she, she said, there's, there's a clear priority here. I'm going to call your judge. We're going to be in here next Friday. And then he's, you know, looking his head down. And ups- I, 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 I know I've said it a lot of times. I've never seen anything like it. So that's who you have representing the conference. I was there, I said, for that first day of testimony as well, where they called the facilitator of the viability study up. And this is someone who's, and I, I like him quite a bit. But uh, the judge, you know, she was she was a somewhat active judge. You know, there was the lawyers asking questions, but from time to time when she was confused, she would ask questions as well. And so to the guy on the stand, um, she just tried to figure out why is it that it took so long to to get together that second time? Was it a lot of material that needed to be generated? Was it really challenging? He said, no, it's actually a pretty simple process. We could We can pretty easily do it. And she said, okay, well, what were you doing in April? You couldn't schedule anything for the entire month of April. And then, you know, he gave his explanations and she said, okay, what were you doing in May? You couldn't schedule it May. And uh, uh, same explanations, you know, we had special called conference. There was a lot of activity around that. He had to get all the people together in the same room. And then she's just, you know, confused. And finally she says, do they not have Zoom in Methodist churches? And he said, what? And she said, what did, how did y'all get together during COVID times, did you not have Zoom? And he said, yeah, we have Zoom. She said, why couldn't you do Zoom? There was no answer, you know? So it just became abundantly clear in the course of this uh, questioning that that it could have happened. There were ways to make it happen. They were just not very motivated to make it happen. You can't, I, I can't say reasons for why they weren't motivated. I can just say it seemed pretty clear to everybody in the courtroom that the conference leadership was very content to let this thing draw out. The other thing uh, that happened the following Friday I heard from someone who was there was they got another conference official uh, up there who's arguably the number two in command, and uh, they started asking him, well, have you been a part of conversations about closing the conference office and moving the offices to another building? Um, the What's behind that is the the finances of the conference are falling greatly, and one easy solution would be to sell the conference office building and then put offices and a church under their authority, which would be First Church Oklahoma City. So the the theory behind this being the reason that they're slow walking them through the process and creating all the stink around them is so that they eventually can move their offices into that building. The person being interviewed at, at that point or questioned at that point refused to answer the question until the judge got involved and put pressure on. So um, that that all but vindicated the suspicion that this very different treatment of this local church was done for materialist purposes in the annual conference leadership. Um, there are other people in conference leadership that are integrity people that are just doing the best with what they have. And um, even up on the stand, I had no desire to badmouth these people. Here and now, I don't want to badmouth these people. But what I would say is, when you're so close to a situation like they are, there's this way that things get out of focus, and they get out of control, and people find themselves serving in a capacity that otherwise they would 
plainly know is wrong and unconscionable. In this case, people of other good, otherwise good discernment have decided to use their authority and their power to constrain and coerce a local church to essentially abandoning its buildings so that they can occupy it. Now, there were a lot of people who thought that the conference's strategy would be to make them go through this viability study and then just say, sorry, you're not viable. We can't acknowledge you as a, a body that can have this conversation. Rather, we're going to file exigent circumstances and take your building and assets so that we can administer them better than, than you do. And I, that's, that's what happened at Fifth Avenue United Methodist in North Carolina. That's, that's what happened at uh, uh, Struthers United Methodist in East Ohio. That seems to be what's happened at Surfside City and uh, California uh, Pacific Annual Conference. I'm hoping to, to read more about that soon. But um, I actually don't think that's what the conference was planning to do here. Rather, um, if you've watched my coverage on Eastern Pennsylvania Annual Conference, what, what uh, Bishop Scholl has done is try and stack the cards in, in a certain way so that the conference says, gives him authority so that then he says, look, I'm just doing what the conference wanted. So he, he presented this legislation at, at the front end of annual conference, giving him um, this authority to, to take property. And so the suspicion was that later down the line, he's planning on using it. And when they accuse him of being an unfair um, autocrat, he can say, well, the annual conference gave me this authority, so I'm just doing what they wanted. Similarly, I think it was the conference's intention to create a stink around First Church Oklahoma City so that they would be put on the final slate of churches uh, to exit the denomination in October of this year. Um, and then they could just say they completed all the paperwork, they did everything we asked of them. We did do a viability study. They don't look viable to us. They don't seem real interested and doing some of the things we recommend. So annual conference, it's up to you if you want to let them go. And then at that point, they would uh, separate off First Church and the assembled uh, conference would say, uh, now let's, let's, let's take the building. So in that event, the conference staff could say, we didn't make this happen. We didn't, you know, we let them go through the process. We presented them for ratification. It was the will of the body that they be held up. So I think that's how they would save face as not being overtly authoritarian and greedy and selfish. They could just put it on the conference, but the conference would be doing the implicit will of the conference. So anyway, that's just my theory, and take it or leave it. There's no way to validate it because I'm not, uh, in case I'm not being clear, I'm not party to these backroom conversations. Uh, all this is reported to me secondhand by people who are close to the situation and um, they're pretty tight-lipped within the conference office. They've, they've definitely created a shared understanding of what it is that they're doing and what the game plan is, and they're not sharing it with others. So anyway, let me tell you what happened. This is the most interesting thing. Uh, the, the judge did her homework, read all the documents, asked the incisive questions, saw what she saw, and then came back with what I understand to be an unprecedented decision. She said that the annual conference had indeed held them up wrongly, that their congregational vote on disaffiliation, which was previously conducted without the DS present, it was just a straw poll, my understanding was, that that vote would be honored so that they would be brought to a special, another special called annual conference. Oklahoma's had three on the books. Uh, we've had two that I've already met, another in October. She says, nope, you need to have one uh, within 20 days. 
by August 6th to consider ratification of the church. And the voting parties are not just those who are still in the conference, but also any representatives from those 55 churches that also disaffiliated in April, May. It's an incredible decision. She is giving voice and vote to churches that have already disaffiliated because the case was made that the, the conference has already so stacked the cards, so, so stacked the deck, that the current constituency of the conference will not allow them to go, no matter what. Such a stink has already been created. So she said, okay, well, um, hypothetically, they should have been with these 55 other churches. Let's do our best to reconstruct the scenario where they would have the same playing field for consideration. I think it is an outstanding decision. Now, the question is, is the conference going to abide by it? If they did this, I think they could do it by the Book of Discipline, but it would require in immediately setting up a, uh, a large Zoom conference for consideration. A lot of machinery would have to move, and uh, I don't think they have any intention of doing it. The people I know who, uh, who are close to this situation don't think the conference has any um, intention of doing it. So at that point, what happens if they don't do it, if they just stomp their feet and dig in and, and say, we're not doing it. Well, at that point, um, they can be sanctioned. And one of the uh, things that can come out of that is a hearing on being held in contempt. Uh, so the question is, is our my former bishop here, Jimmy Nunn, up for a contempt hearing? Um, that's an interesting question. The There is an appeals court in Oklahoma, which they will almost certainly appeal to, but the problem is that their emergency ruling process does not allow for them to move as quick as 20 days out. So even if they were to consider an emergency, I think it'd be called an injunction, that would still be after they are uh, not in compliance with the orders of the state. So we're looking at an escalation here. Uh, we're looking at a situation where hypothetically there could be a, an appeals case where the ruling of the uh, initial judge is reversed, and that would be catastrophic. It could also be reinstated uh, and supported, which would have a new precedent in state law around church-state relations. It would also, I don't even know what they would do at that point to hold a vote for First Church if they would just allow First Church to summarily leave, or if we would have to, you know, a year down the line, call another special called conference where we're trying to get together the same representatives from all the churches. There's a lot of unknowns at this point. Uh, as I've said several times, it's an un unprecedented situation. It's very exciting. Someone like, I mean, I was immediately happy to, to hear this decision because, to my mind, the conference has been so clearly wrong this whole time. I, I, you know, I hear about other traditions that let churches just go if they want. The way that, that the Oklahoma Annual Conference and so many conferences have chosen to be heavy-handed and uncharitable. Um, really, I think it's morally reprehensible to make churches pay or do anything if they clearly want to leave. I just think that's a really weird place to be as a Christian authority to say you can't leave until you please me in a number of ways. But even so, you know, there are other conferences, say just north of here in Kansas, where they paid the fee for churches to go that wanted to go. They tapped into reserves, 
and let it happen. I think that was the only way to navigate this charitably and earnestly. That's not what Oklahoma Annual Conference has done. And as much as I personally like the people in those positions, I'm appalled by their Christian witness. And I'm very pleased that they picked terrible legal representation, that they were given an assiduous judge who was discerning and had clear common sense. And I'm clear that I'm so glad that this was given its day in court. Uh, hats off to Hardy Patton and the constituency of First Church Oklahoma City. It takes a lot as a church to decide to go to court. And, um, you know, there is scripture about this, and it is not easy to navigate and continue to go to court. Um, they made the decision that they made. It's been a great trial for them, and they've they've prevailed Um it's a sad day whenever worldly courts have a better sense of justice than the church. Uh, this is this is cause for great concern within the American church. Whenever we we've lacked discernment around sexual um, holiness for some time, but to lack discernment around um, power, how power works, um, and how it is that we can and should use power over each other's that's just a really concerning place to be, and the fact that the conference is probably going to dig dig its heels in rather than uh, repent and acknowledge that they got way off base, that that will continue to cause me um, sympathetic pain. You know, I'm I'm out from under their control now, but even so, you know, these are people I know. They have influence and control over people that I know. It's just... um, it hurts me that it's going to continue to be a prolonged situation that that causes more fallout and pain, costs a lot more money, uh, which, by the way, I'll go ahead and put up a, a link to uh, the legal fund for First Church if you want to support that. If you're clear that this is something that our dollars need to go toward, um, you can you can do that. But um, anyway, I think that's the long and short of, of what I had to, to report. I'm sorry that I don't know more, but also... I don't know how I could know more without being on the conference staff or being part of the legal counsel team, and I'm not there. One thing I will say uh, for you to be in prayer about is Church of the Servant, another very large, very rich church in Oklahoma City, also has been held up by the conference and also has filed suit against the conference, and they're saying their day in court right now. I don't know how it's going. I might do a follow-up video talking about them but it may or may not be with the same judge. They definitely have the same uh, legal representation that did a fantastic job, by the way. Karen Nicholas <laughs> is part of the, the GMC. Um, it's just a, an amazing confluence of lots of things that have been building up for a long time, and it looks like it's going to be prolonged a bit longer. So uh, you know how to pray. Uh, we're praying for peace. We're praying for reconciliation. We're praying for repentance on the part of those who have been in faithless covenant with uh, local churches. And uh, lest it needs be said, we need to pray that people in these local churches that are aggrieved continue to conduct themselves with integrity and holiness because nothing pleases the evil one more than whenever people who are on the side of right decide to act wrong. So anyway, uh, let's let's guard our hearts and make keep ourselves in check so that uh, this whole both sides thing doesn't have any truth to it. All right, that'll be it for me today. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. God bless you. I'll, I'll see you next time.